to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Rebecca Watterson, a researcher on the project and PhD candidate at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in a unique urban environment, Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dr. Ruth Kuhn and Mr. Patrick Garland about experiences of working in hospitals in Belfast during the Troubles. So hi, Ruth and Patrick, welcome to this episode and thank you for joining us. Uh, Ruth, if we start with you um, for our first question, what was it like for medical staff working at hospitals in Belfast during the Troubles? Well, it was a very complex work environment for the staff involved. And some of the medical staff who I interviewed for my own PhD project spoke of the challenges of working and what they described as a war zone. So working at hospitals such as the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast could be very dangerous. There was threats issued by the IRA on several occasions, which sort of described the hospital as a legitimate target. And then the hospital witnessed violence within its walls. So one surgeon who I interviewed from from the Royal spoke of having a gun pointed at his chest in a case of mistaken identity before it was actually turned on his friend next to him who was shot twice and sadly died. And then a mortuary attendant was killed on hospital grounds in 1977. Then on October 1980, an ambulance controller was tragically shot and killed while at work. And then also in 1991, we had Musgrave Park Hospital, which was bombed and sadly two people died. But there was also another emotional aspect which staff faced, which is that they could possibly know the victim of the violence personally. And some medical staff did lose loved ones to the violence as well. Thank you, Ruth. And Patrick, what was your experience of working at the Royal Victoria Hospital during the trouble? Well, it was uh, it was quite normal, actually. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't experience any of the sort of uh, incidents that Ruth just described. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the main difficulty I had working at the Royal was actually getting to Royal and then getting home again. Uh, basically, working inside Royal was... More or less, I mean, you had to contend with uh, things like British Army patrols in corridors. Uh, you encountered the army, you know, when you went into specific areas, particularly the uh, the regional intensive care unit, where, where they set up a sort of fortified uh, reception area. So basically, you know, we didn't want to go into it. We certainly didn't want to go through the uh, where the where the the army were. Uh, but we were stopped and sort of more or less, they didn't search us, but they looked us over and uh, took a few minutes to get by them. Uh, but uh, really, you know, I suppose uh, in terms of who did what, I mean, you bear in mind that it was, it was a, you know, a big teaching hospital in Belfast. Uh, thousands upon thousands of staff, thousands of uh, patients coming and going every day. And you had uh, armed uh, uh, army, uh, you know, personnel going up and down the corridors every day, and they were armed to the teeth. Let's face it, you know, there were a few incidents where they dropped guns and in, in the corridor and the guns fired, uh, narrowly missing. Uh, people won multiple occasions. They, I think, very narrowly missed one of the quarters in the link corridor, uh, which precipitated a, a week-long strike. Uh, and the, during the negotiations. I remember a big guy called Brad Sullivan, who was the newbie convener at the time, having a sort of a, it wasn't so much a negotiation, it was in the middle of casualty, 
And my mum saying to this, uh, army officer, do you think that your soldiers should be parading around this uh, this hospital with a bullet up the spout and no safety on? And the guy, I remember it as well, and I will, I will remember it always, he looked at him and he just laughed. What do you mean my soldiers can't, <laughs> can't go around armed to the team in this, by implication, in this, you know, civilian uh, medical facility? Uh, so it was a question of uh, attitudes, really. Just to uh, correct Ruth, uh, the death that she referred to of the mortuary attendant was, in fact, one of the porters from the main corridor, a guy called Jerry Tucker. This was around about 1977. Jerry Tucker was a member of the Ulster Defence Regiment who were being targeted all over Northern Ireland by the IRA. Uh, and in terms of his personal safety, uh, you know, you, you make one think, why was Jerry Tucker, uh, a UDR man, coming and going from this IRA hospital? You know, clearly there were people who were sympathetic to the IRA. Clearly there were a lot of people like Jerry Tucker who were sympathetic to the, to the British Army, the police, whatever. Uh, but in terms of personal sort of security, I thought really, really that somebody would want to do that. You know, just uh, as a, a little say there for you. Thank you. Riss, we'll come back to you. Um, what were the main types of injuries caused by the violence? So obviously, because it was a, a very long conflict, there was a lot of different types of violence which occurred. And therefore, there was lots of different types of injuries. So things like blast injuries to the bodies and the limb, hearing loss from, from being near a bomb blast, also facial injuries, burns, etc. But I suppose the most common physical injury caused by the violence were generally to the limbs. And around 40% of all injuries were to the limbs. So this led to sort of a need for orthopedic services and also rehabilitative services. So there's been this suggestion made that there were some benefits for the conflict, for the development of medical care. And I suppose for orthopedics, this could possibly be argued to be the case. So one particular area of violence, particularly that caused injuries to the limbs, was paramilitary punishment injuries or knee cappings, as they were often referred to. And there was innovations and in treatments and techniques which occurred to the respond to these demands. So John Templeton, an orthopaedic surgeon at the Royal, created the Belfast Fixator, which is an external fixation device which could be used for the treatment of fractures when it was necessary to have access to the skin. But also there was another important innovation, which was the development of vascular shunts for limb injuries by Mr. Eris Barros de Sa. And his work personally resulted in a significant drop in the hospital's amputation rate. So I suppose both techniques have um, potential benefits for the treatment of these kind of injuries, but these also were uh, useful for the care of people who were injured, for example, in like motorcycle accidents as well. So there, there is these suggestions of, of positive, and you can't really say, oh, violence created positives, but at the same time, it did help certain areas advance. Great, Ruth, thank you. And Patrick, did you feel safe at work? Uh, yeah, for the most part, yes. I mean... Uh... As I've already sort of said, you felt uh, less safe when you left work or when you were coming to work. But generally, in the main, between IRA attacks on the, on the premises themselves, uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty safe environment. Uh, I mean, we sort of, I worked in casually and I was there for probably during hours of daylight. Uh, 90% percent of the incidents that took place in West Belfast, probably Greater Belfast, uh, from about 1972. So, you know, we saw the people coming in, we saw the casualties, we, we arranged for transport for them, we, we actually 
in some cases we were actually in the resuscitation cutting uh, clothes of people who you know had been uh, caught in uh, in explosions and whatnot. Uh, we then arranged for the uh, transportation of uh, people who had unfortunately passed away, uh, brought them to the morgue, etc. Uh, disposed of limbs, you know, that had become detached from people. So, but of course, uh, we were well used to that sort of thing because there were previous to the, uh, the actual troubles beginning in earnest, there was a what we called a reduction theater uh, just down the corridor from uh, the casualty department. And in there, people would go for amputations. So t taking a limb to the incinerator was quite a common thing. Seems a bit ghoulish, but you know, it's just one of the just one of the things that you had to you had to cope with on a daily basis. You know? But certainly in terms of safety, no, I don't, don't think we actually felt any less safe, except maybe uh, just to give you a sort of a, another perspective on it. We had a locker room on the Level one, as they call it, basically, usually, usually we call it a basement, but it was level one, strange uh, nomenclature of the Royal. Uh, we had a locker room down there, and around the Christmas time, we would bring in a few beers, right? Because all the clinics were closed, and you know, a few people on call for whatever. We'd have a few beers before on your Christmas Eve, but across the hall from us was our old friends, the British Army, and they were in a sort of a locked environment. and of course, on this particular occasion, they were having a few beers. So we were sitting having our beers, and then a couple of uh, British squaddies appeared at our door, and they were not terribly happy. Boys, they came in and they gave us dogs abuse. <laughs> Told us what they were going to do with us, and you know all this malarkey. We finally they had a few a few drinks too many, obviously, but uh, at one stage. Now, without trying to color us, really, one of them unzipped his revolver, didn't point it at anyone, but sort of brandished it. It was a bit unnerving, but we got him settled down, and we got one of his mates to come in, and they let him away. So, I mean, in terms of safety, that was as close as I ever got to on the premises, you know, to a, a real sort of incident, you know. But uh, I put it down to the festive uh, cheer that, that year. <laughs> it's really it's, um really interesting and also um <laughs> well it's terrifying to me I suppose but um thank you Ruth uh, if we come back to you how did medical staff deal with the challenges of remaining neutral and treating all their patients the same well I suppose within hospitals in Northern Ireland during the conflict it wouldn't be unusual to have those from different sides of the community or from the various paramilitary groups, or from the security forces being cared for. Out of, on occasions, they would be within the same ward, and even occasionally side by side, particularly if they were within the intensive care unit. Often, it would be the patient's families that would be the issue, rather than the patients themselves, and medical staff would have to do their best to just keep them apart. Um, all the medical staff that I personally interviewed uh, stressed that they felt that they provided treatment no matter what the background of the individual was or what they might have done and it seemed to be very important to them to ensure that this point was made very strongly about their neutrality but there were some difficulties expressed uh, with this by individuals and I think that there were some patients that they would rather have not had to treat but this overall the importance of being professional in this respect for them was very clear 
medical staff would have had other issues as well, such as this obligation to disclose information to the security forces if a patient had been injured in the violence. And this would have been a threat to the doctor-patient relationship and also the confidence patients would have in their doctors. So all these kind of issues were at play at the time. But they, from the people I've spoke to in the past, they all were very clear that they had remained neutral and it was very important to them to, to ensure that people understood this. Ruth, the, you just mentioned there was an obligation to disclose if a patient had been injured in violence. Could you expand a wee bit on that, please? Certainly. Um, under the regulations that were in place at the time, there was this uh, regulation that if anyone, not just patient, people in, in medical settings, knew of a person who had been injured in violence, that they should report this to the police. But obviously, in the terms of a medical setting, you have the confidentiality between the, you know, the, the medical professional and the patient. So there was issues and it was a little unclear for some of the medical staff as to what could happen if they did choose not to report. And there was, I think there were occasions that they were threatened that they could receive legal action if they did not fulfill this obligation. But after a while, it was decided that it would not be legally enforced on medical staff but often medical professionals would choose to give information to the security forces but it was uh, not they were not so much threatened if they did not choose to do so. Thank you. Um, Patrick what were your experiences of neutrality and professionality amongst the staff? Well I thought the uh, I thought the makeup of the staff uh, was just reflective of society generally in Northern Ireland. Uh, as time went on, I joined in about 1972, and it was clear to me that, just from, from talking to people, that had the troubles not occurred, that had the rats not occurred in 69 and the curfew in 70 and so on and so forth, uh, that perhaps I wouldn't have got a job in Royal because of my religion. And as time went by, it was clearly a trend that Protestants were leaving and Catholics were joining. And this may go a long way towards the sort of uh, reputation that the Royal had as being the, you know, the IRA hospital. It certainly wasn't an IRA hospital. It certainly was nationalist in, in outlook. But, uh, you know, that was uh, basically, you know, people certainly from the Protestant uh, side of the fence, they actually didn't want to come and be employed in, in the Royal. So, I mean, that's just understand, you know. In terms of uh, the neutrality itself, I never found anybody. I, there was, you know, you got to, if you go back uh, through those days, the 70s, it was much more of a social sort of problem. Or it was very sort of uh, radically socialist, I would, would have described it, than even nationalist, uh, which of course, I mean, this was the same all over. The National Health Service, as ever, as even today, you know, grossly underfunded. Well, back then it was it was a it was a basket case, really. Uh, you know, when you had this, uh, yeah, this more or less civil war going on outside the gates, and you know, this didn't translate into you know more resources, more money for people, more you know, okay, if you had the resources were already there, and as Ruth has already alluded to, there were a lot of very very uh, very creative doctors, nurses, whatever, you know come along with uh, medical solutions that just didn't exist before uh, and that was fabulous but there was no actual you know earmarking of money for that sort of thing that had to be sort of funded from you know what, what they had 
so that my experience of working in the place really was more from a sort of the, the social side, I think, when things came to a head in around about 70, 78, 79, I went to discontent, probably. You'll read about it in the in the history books. Well, I remember standing on the on the picket line for about six weeks, freezing. <laughs> uh, and of course, we had, you know, porters, uh, domestic workers, uh, laundry workers, etc., etc. all the ancillary groups. A lot of the clerical staff, but not by any means a majority of them, and none of the medical and nursing staff. In fact, uh, I'll give you another anecdote. We were at the, we were at the uh, casually on the full road, standing at the pavement, when a senior orthopedic surgeon, not the one that Ruth, <laughs> I know all the people with Ruth, but spoke, this wasn't one of them. I won't tell you his name, but he came up to really abuse us on the picket line. But what he did was he poked his head out through the door, a small gap, and he just poked his head out, and he gave us a mouthful. What he didn't see was one of my colleagues was just beside the door, who then slammed the door on his head and crapped his head in, in the doorway. And because he had a very particularly bald pit, you know, the, the, the spectacle, and of course we just fell a bit laughing at this guy, you know, who had left the comfort of his office and his clinic to make his way up onto the bald road to give dogs abuse to us who were standing freezing in the cold. You know, and I thought, well, but that, I still have a laugh for that, but, you know, there you are. Uh, well, but, you know, apart from that, I mean, it was, it was clear after the winter of discontent that all of the old social norms in the Royal and probably across all of the health service had, were broken. Because previous to that, you would have seen people, uh, you know, porters, domestics, cleaners, whatever, uh, defer a lot to nursing staff, senior sisters, the matron, uh, doctors. After 70, 78, 79, after that winter, a lot of that sort of disappeared, you know, because they didn't, they expected, I think some of them expected a bit more support and they didn't get any support. And after that, things were completely different, certainly in a social sense and, and where they sort of stood in relation to each other, you know. So, I mean, that's just my sort of take on it. You mentioned the underfunding for some of the, like, medical um, innovations or advances yeah. that were created. Yeah. And that was underfunding and they were having to take that from resources that the hospital yeah. already had. Why do you think then that there was very little nursing staff and no medical staff stood on the picket line? Uh, I think it was basically a, I mean, you talk about this sort of what I would describe as the cult of professionalism, you know, uh, where you have people who come into nursing, people come into medical uh, profession and they are professionals and they stand above everyone else, basically. Whereas the rest of us, we're just, you know, we're just, we're just nine to five. We just work. We get a wage, we go home, we forget about everything. But these people, they carry all of this in their, well, this is the, this is what we're told. They carry it all about in their heads. This is part of this professional ethos and they're constantly learning and they're constantly doing all these things. Well, that, that's fine. Uh, if they want to do that. <clears throat> but at the same time, if, they, if you don't recognize that we're all in the same boat, you know, it doesn't matter how, you know, how high or mighty you think you are. 
you know, if we're not getting the resources to do this, why don't you just everybody get into the, you know, get on the picket line or support or whatever, and then maybe we'll all have a bit better bit of clout, you know, at the end of the day. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's, that's, uh, that's just what I thought at the time, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think that was, it became manifest in the sort of the, the, the breaking of these social taboos, this deference, you know, where the sort of uh, the ancillary groups, uh, ancillary workers just thought, well, you know, we got notes of these people, you know, why should we bother with them, you know? Uh, I would like to think, I've been out of the world for 20 odd years, so I would like to think that that may have changed. And I know, uh, I mean, certainly I'm still a trade unionist. Uh, I know that the, the union I'm with did give a lot of support to the nurses and they were on strike there last year. So hopefully that, that's, that's a thing in the past, you know. Okay, Ruth, what kind of support was available for medical staff who worked through the troubles? So, yeah, there was a lack of official support available to medical staff who worked during this period and at the time counselling wasn't available to them and the idea of asking for help was often viewed as weak. Obviously at the time counselling perhaps wasn't a, a big thing in terms of the general population anyway but for medical staff there was this get on with the job attitude which kind of prevailed and a sense that medical staff were almost viewed as being immune to the emotional effects of dealing with the often terrifying and heartbreaking aftermath of the violence. But to say that they were immune would be incorrect. You know, some of the individuals who worked during that period have clearly been affected by what they've dealt with. There were studies carried out after the Oma bomb in 1998, which revealed that burnout, by which I mean a state of physical and emotional exhaustion as a consequence of being involved with like long-term demanding situations, had increased among those who responded to the event's aftermath. And there was other studies that revealed instances of PTSD among medical staff. But there should be also noted, really, that unfortunately, poor mental health has become a significant legacy of troubles for the population in general in Northern Ireland. And there is a sad lack of support historically for mental health in Northern Ireland, and particularly related to trauma. Thank you. Um, Patrick, did you ever receive any support for working through the troubles? No. Not in <laughs> so far as I was aware. Now, a couple of years before I left the Royal, which would have been about 1990, uh, there, they did bring in a sort of a counselling uh, service, uh, but it was not specifically targeted at, you know, anything to do with the troubles. It was basically a sort of stress type thing, uh, which may or may not have included uh, troubles related uh, work issues uh, but I do not know of anyone that sort of uh, availed of it. Is there a reason why do you think? Uh, well I, I, it wasn't really that uh, well thought of basically because it was basically a it was a staff nurse who had been you know had this thing thrust upon her and as far as I know she had no sort of uh, counselling you know training skills or whatever i might be completely wrong but i mean i knew the girl so and i never had known her to directly do this so you know it could have been part of it or it could have been you know people uh, unless they're actually at the end of their tether will not go to these things uh you know because they're basically people are very private and they don't want to you know have their sort of innermost thoughts you know trotted out in front of people even though it was a 
you know, confidential uh, service, but at the same time. And I think the way it was sort of, there, the, there were never great communicators, as I recall, in the Royal, you know, these things sort of turned up in the, I mean, this is, this is the days before, <laughs> I know it's, it's hard to imagine, but this is the days before the internet and, you know, social, I mean, we did have pieces of paper and stuff with things written on them. Uh, we had a magazine, a, a Royal magazine, which went out once a month. And these things would be tucked away in a little column, you know, in the back of it. Uh, and it, unless you were an avid reader of this, you know, you were looking for it, you would never have seen it, you know. Thank you. Ruth, what methods did medical staff use to help them deal with the trauma? Such a just lack of official support available. They had to find their own ways of coping. And from former staff, which I spoke to and interviewed, there was a common theme, which was this importance of camaraderie and teamwork that sort of an unofficial system of support developed they looked out for one another because they understood what each other was going through and they could talk through those experiences together if they wanted to and this sort of team spirit extended outside of work and staff would spend social and recreational time together and some of the individuals that I spoke to spoke about having barbecues or going for meals out together and I suppose another method of coping with the horrors of the time was use of humour that despite the dark circumstances that they were able to find something to laugh about and of course this use of black humor as a coping mechanism is a common thread in northern irish society and also many of the medical staff who i spoke to spoke fondly of their time of working in the health service despite the horrors of the conflict they often enjoyed their work and they enjoyed the challenges of the period and the, this feeling of camaraderie and teamwork that developed and some of them said that they wouldn't want to work in the health service today because they felt it was very different to what it was like when, when they were working. For example, nurses who used to live in the nursing homes and live together, work together and had their social time together. And they talked about not liking the idea of just going to work and going home to their own homes. They liked this when they were training and when they were working, living together and being together. Thank you. Um, Patrick, do you have any other memories or stories? That you would like to share about your time working in the Royal? I have a load of them. Well, I mean, let, let's give you a sensational one. <clears throat> okay. Way back in the dark days, before, you know, uh, credit cards and bank cards and things, uh, we used to get our wages, uh, basically we got money every every week in an envelope. I know what it's, it's really, really strange, this concept. <laughs> yeah, they used to bring down your money. Uh, you could open the envelope and count it out, blah, blah. Uh, but then, of course, they decided that they would uh, pay us by check much cheaper for them, much more inconvenient for us because very, very few people actually had bank accounts. So what you would do is you would go to your local shopkeeper and you come to an arrangement with them and they would change your check. Uh, but it was much more convenient for us. There was a bar at the corner of the uh, Springfield Road and the Falls Road called Beacon's Bar. It's now called Beacon's Chemist for reasons I'm about to relate. We used to go over there on a, it was a Thursday. You got to pay on Thursday for our checks. And we had an arrangement with the barman to cash your checks. He would do us the courtesy of cashing your checks. And we would do him the courtesy of having a paint in his bar. So that was fabulous. Great. Uh, and then, of course, this, 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 this went on for a few months until, of course, Several nationalists all fell out and decided they would have a feud. Now, because people of a certain stripe would occasionally drink in this bar, it became known as associated with one side or the other. 
So we, on the Thursday, went over to the bar, got our checks changed, pints all around, lads, sat down, and we had a pint, uh, maybe a pork pie or whatever, for lunch, and we're munching away. And of course, lo and behold, the door opens, there's a guy with a gun, it was a Colt 45, big, big American thing, uh, and another guy with a little duffel bag. <laughs> and of course, he pushed his way, there were a couple of old age pensioners sitting right at the top of the bar. So he lifted their table. I remember this, I will remember it till the day of that. They both had a bottle of Guinness uh, in glasses, probably Red Heart, which was very, very uh, popular at the time. And he just lifted it, upended it. Their drinks went all over the place and he showed it. He has a 15 minutes to get out, to put duffel bag down between the two old boys, right? And then they cleared off. So, of course, with great presence of mind, we lifted our pints and we exited by the other door, just pausing to make sure the two old boys were following us, of course. And then we decamped to another bar just up the street called the, I think it was called the Elephant Bar. It's still there, which was directly opposite Springfield Road uh, police station. And of course, a friend of mine said to me, I wonder should we go over there and tell the policeman? And another friend said, well, sure. It's not a big deal, is it? <laughs> but eventually they got the traffic stopped and blah, blah, blah. And you have to give it to these boys. 15 minutes to dot, boom, this place went off. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it never, it was never a bar after that. When they rebuilt it, it became a chemist's shop, which it still is today. So if anybody asks you what was there before, it was a bar. Very nice bar too, but, you know, all things must pass. <laughs> Where did you cash your checks after that? Well, we had the open bank accounts, unfortunately. Luckily enough, there was a Bank of Ireland just down the street. Very good. Thank you very much. Um, I could talk all night. Um, this is really, really interesting. Thank you both so much. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this episode, Dr. Coon and Mr. Garland, and for sharing some very interesting insights on experiences of working in hospitals in Belfast during the Troubles. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.